0: Um, hey, we're starting a new series tonight called Upside Down. We're going to be in for uh, the next three weeks tonight and for the next three Wednesday nights um, until our Christmas break. And uh, what we're going to look at, when I say upside down, we're going to look at what I'm calling the upside downness of the kingdom of God. And I don't even know that that's a word, but the upside downness of the kingdom of God. The good news that, um, that Jesus brought into the world was and is good news of sort of the availability of the kingdom of God. But it's this, it's a completely transformed, this is my tagline, it's the completely transformed reversal of the world's values. It's completely opposite of what the world values. The kingdom of God or the gospel, the good news is not simply strength to live according to the world's values. It's the complete opposite. It's the total reversal. In the kingdom of God, the world's values are are just flipped upside down. And uh, it's the opposite of how most people in our world operate. And so to start off tonight, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Matthew tonight at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Jesus delivers probably the most famous sermon ever recorded because it's in the Bible. It's Matthew 5, chapters 5 through 7. Um, Each week, we're going to look at a teaching of Jesus. I'm not quite sure if we're going to hit all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but pretty close to that. But so we're looking at what did Jesus teach that reflects this idea that the kingdom of God, that the gospel, it sort of takes the world's values and just flips them upside down. And so um, we're starting tonight at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, chapter 7, and there are parts of this, you guys, that are absolutely shocking. Um, there's a passage in here that, that I wanted to focus on the most. I'm sort of going over four different illustrations that Jesus gives um, but one of them was the, the part that I wanted to hone in on the most that's sort of a scary passage, one of those difficult teachings of Jesus in the Bible. And uh, so um, let's just, I'm going to read this whole passage starting in Matthew 7, and, uh, and then we'll sort of dissect it. Can could we, could we do this? We've never done this before, and I've always sort of wanted to, and there's nothing, I'm not going to do this every week, but can we all stand up as I like read this passage? Um, I know that's not like weird, some churches do this all the time. But you can just look at the screens. Some churches, I think, do this because it's it's really right and good to honor the word of God in this way. So Matthew chapter seven verse thirteen. If you have a Bible that's greater, you can look at it at the screens, and then I'm going through uh, verse twenty seven. Jesus says this, and I'm going to read the um, the headings too. Although they're not inspired, they're not actually scripture, but they're in the Bible. The narrow and wide gates. Jesus says, "Enter through the narrow gate." For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. True and false prophets. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And finally, the wise and foolish builders. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You guys can take a seat. That was nice. That was cool. It was fun to stand. So what do we have here? Uh, Well, obviously, this whole section is loaded with metaphors. And uh, again, as I said, Jesus is concluding a sermon here that started in Matthew chapter 5. And this is the end of it. I didn't read the very last verse of the chapter. Um, the crowds are sort of amazed at his teaching. But this is how he ends this sermon, this very, very famous sermon. And the first thing I want you to notice, the first thing that I noticed as I started studying this, was that there's always two things being compared in all four of these illustrations, right? Two things. Even you'll notice the headings, um, narrow and wide gates, uh, true and false prophets, true and false disciples, and wise and foolish builders. Within the passages, there's two gates, right? There's two roads. There's two trees. There's two kinds of fruit on those trees. There's two houses built on two different foundations. And again, this is how Jesus concludes this sermon. And you might think that Jesus is saying something like this. This is perhaps what I thought. In conclusion, I've given you this, this all this bunch of teaching, this sermon, and in conclusion, there are two ways to live, right? Two gates, two trees, two houses. There's two ways to live, but I think there's more to it than that. And so, is Jesus saying there's two ways to live? I'm going to say yes and no, and we'll come back to that. I must say, though, this is one of the most hard-hitting passages of Scripture, and yet um, it's very, very important. It's intriguing to me that it's so early in the New Testament. You know, this is the first book in the New Testament. Obviously, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all uh, recordings of the life and ministry of Jesus, but this is very early on. So, let's look at this difficult passage. The passage that has always intrigued me since I first read it in high school, probably late high school, was this, uh, the true and false disciples passage, verses 21 through 23. Um, It's sort of scary, right? So, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? But Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Kind of a scary passage, isn't it? That we go, I thought that's what, like, the point was, was to do this stuff that these people are doing. What is going on with people? Real quick, four things that we find just in these two verses, 22 and 23, that I want to point out. First of all, these people are are essentially professing Christians. They're claiming the name of Jesus. You notice in verse 22, uh, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons, and in your name, perform many miracles. They're taking on the name of Jesus. They're essentially calling themselves Christians. At this point, I don't know exactly when this is written. I don't know that people, that they were necessarily called Christians yet. But taking on the name of Jesus. So, that's one thing. Secondly, notice this. They call Jesus Lord. The word essentially means master. Although, in the, new, in the first century, in the Greek, when they used the word Lord, this Greek word, Kyrios, um, it really had connotations of deity. That the phrase in the first century that everybody knew, and certainly Matthew's audience would have known, the phrase was Kaiser Curios. Kaiser Curios, which meant, anyone know Caesar is Lord? That they attributed deity or deistic characteristics to Caesar, right? And the phrase that everyone said to everyone in the Roman world was, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians would have the audacity to say, no, no, we're not gonna say that Jesus is Lord. And so by, by calling him Lord, it probably meant they were public in their devotion. They weren't hiding the fact that Jesus was their Lord. They were saying, not Caesar, Jesus. Number three is notice the repetition. They don't just call Him Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. Now, maybe that shouldn't strike us so much, um, but as I looked into this, and as I've, I've heard other people say before, in Jewish writings, anytime, certainly anytime they wanted to emphasize something, anytime we want to emphasize something, we say it twice, But in their language, in the Greek, and then in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, they didn't have words like like in the English language where we say this person was rich, this person was richer, or richest. And so, not only to to add emphasis, but also to convey emotion in the biblical writings, they would use the doubling of a word. And so, in the Old Testament, you had uh, King Solomon's son, or I'm sorry, King David's son died. And so, over and over again, he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, trying to convey emotion. Think of other words in the Bible that repeat. Holy, holy, holy. So not just twice, but they're saying three times. God is holy, holy, holy. They didn't have a word for like holiest. So they would just repeat it. So even that, um, Lord, Lord, the doubling of a word. Finally, we see that they're doing they're doing their ministry, as I said, right? They're doing all this great stuff, uh, prophesying, driving out demons. In fact, this is the stuff, right, that's sort of like... Almost comes with like the amplified, like, you know, you can teach, that's one thing, you counsel, but if you're like driving out demons and performing miracles, you know, we might put the, maybe you've heard the phrase charismatic or the miraculous signs or whatever. They're doing this stuff. They're very, very active. People's lives are being changed. And what does Jesus say to these people? He goes, good job. Well done, faithful servant. This is what Christians are supposed to do. You're doing it. That's what we feel like this is what the Christian life is supposed to be, right? And yet he says, no, I never knew you. Not just you started out strong and then you sort of drifted from church. He says, I never knew you. What is going on? You know, I think to some degree I feel like this is maybe supposed to scare us a little bit. But again, I find this is chapter 7 of the New Testament. Isn't this crazy? This is essentially at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Now, I don't know that every single story in Matthew or in the four Gospels is chronological, but for the most part, it is. that The writers wrote the story of Jesus chronologically. why they all end with the crucifixion, right, and the resurrection. But so this is only a little ways in. Jesus starts with this, this sermon to these crowds. Why does he put this at the end? And then what does it mean to be a Christian? So I think this is an arrow pointed at our hearts, saying, what kind of life are we living? Why are we doing the things we're doing? What's our motive? Jesus is very early on in scripture when he comes on the scene, he says, Beware. It is very, very easy to fake your spirituality. It is very, very easy to fake a religious or a spiritual life. So be careful. We can come very, very close to knowing God and not actually know him. In fact, I'm going to say this, and this is the kind of thing, and I don't mean to put doubts in your mind but I've heard other people say this before. You can, you can absolutely think that you're a Christian and not actually be one. Have prayed a prayer once, and for whatever reason, maybe it was false, maybe somebody said, it's just this. All you do is pray a prayer and abracadabra, like you're in. You're, just, you're in, and you'll go to heaven when you die. And it doesn't really matter how you live, but you can, you can half think that you're a Christian and not actually be one. And that applies to me. There's times where I go, not that I, again, I'm not trying to put doubts in your minds. I'm not trying to scare you guys. But we come across a passage like this, and I think we have to deal with this. this is just in the Bible, and so I want you to think about this. Jesus says you can be very, very active as a Christian, but your heart, your heart may not actually be there. Your house, as it were, might be built on the wrong foundation. And how do you know? Do you think these guys knew that this was the case? Maybe. And so that's what's so scary, right? You start to get to the level of your motives and your heart, and you go, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian. What are you saying, Brett? Like, am I supposed to just doubt myself all the time? We'll keep going. One of my illustrations that I've heard before, but it's like a vending machine. When I was very, very early at Brookside, I was a freshman in college. I came um, to Brookside my very first year of college and started serving in tribe. I couldn't, I really wanted to do high school and that you couldn't because you had to be out of high school a year. And so Jeff Dart was recently hired and I was a tribe leader. Before, right at the very beginning, we didn't sell pop and candy yet. We had vending machines, two of them, just on the other side of this wall right here where the TVs are. In fact, this is awesome. I think when I first started coming here, there actually used to be a doorway out into the hallway right there where the TVs are. And another set of double doors over here because this was the old sanctuary when the church was first built. And so there... Anyway, but there was two vending machines right there, and students would line up out there, I remember, by those vending machines, because we didn't sell pop and candy yet, and they'd come on a Wednesday night, it was a Pepsi machine, and there was just a typical vending machine. Well, what happens, right? Sometimes you put your coins, get uh, an item, and it doesn't work, right, in the vending machine. So what do you do? Yeah, you, you just punch it or shake it or whatever, and then you hear the coin drop, and then it gives you what you want. Um, Here's the point. You listen to Bible teaching for years and years, and you can serve, and you can go on mission trips, and you can be very, very active in your spiritual life, but in your heart, the coin hasn't actually dropped, that the gospel has not actually penetrated your heart. And again, you can know your Bible forwards and back. You grow up in church, so you just have to think, I'm just a Christian by default because I've gone to church my whole life. You can do all of that And yet, just think of that illustration that maybe, and again, it's not that like something needs to like shake you or something tragic or like emotional needs to happen in your life for the coin to drop, but there's times where it just hasn't dropped yet. Look back at this passage. What were these people doing? These people have what we would call spiritual gifts, right? It's very, very possible to have spiritual gifts without having spiritual fruit. And so even thinking back in the Bible, King Saul had spiritual gifts, The Spirit was sort of on him, but then after a while, the Spirit left. Judas, Judas Iscariot had spiritual gifts. He went out with the disciples those first two or two and a half, three years, did the work of ministry, but none of these people had spiritual fruit. I can put it another way. Perhaps, I don't know if this is clear either, but you can have spiritual gifts. You can have the gifts of God, but not have the grace of God on your life. That all kinds of people can go out and do a lot of stuff, do a lot of ministry, but they don't have fruit. Spiritual gifts is what you do. Spiritual fruit comes as a result of who you are. Think of Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. There's fruit. It's not just about being active. There's fruit. Are you producing spiritual fruit in yourself or in others? Or are you just producing spiritual gifts? In other words, is Christianity, Christianity really making a difference in your life? Or do you just go through the motions? And man, that's like, yeah, that, I mean, that gets us as leaders. Like, do we just go through the motions? And again, I don't want to say that every day you've got to wake up and go, I'm like gung-ho to be a disciple of Jesus today. I'm going to share my faith and talk to people. But what's the trajectory of your life? Are you just going through the motions? Are you really... Has the coin dropped for you? Do you get it? Which leads us to this question, what in the world does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean? And so here's another wonderful metaphor. Look at the beginning of the passage. So Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Again, Jesus says this, enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Again, you sort of go, oh, I really want to believe that everybody in this world who's seemingly good and not a serial killer gets in. But this is Jesus' words, you guys. This is not just, again, even if it was the Apostle Paul, hopefully we would believe it. But this is Jesus closing out his Sermon on the Mount. Um, now, time out for a second. Again, I want you to think about the title of this series and why we're doing this, this upside down, the upside downness of the kingdom of God, how, how this is the opposite of the way the world works. Think of these two um, passages that we already looked at, the true and false disciples. The world says it only matters what's on the outside, right? The world sort of says, who cares what's on the inside? Just get the job done. You should primarily focus on the externals. Um, like, just, yeah, just do the task. Who cares about your motivation or your heart or what's inside? But God says, no, God says the kingdom of God is completely upside down. That your heart matters a ton, that your motives matter a ton. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Are you just going through the motions? Because here we have people that did everything right on externally and served and worked very hard and did all of this great ministry, and yet Jesus says, I never knew you. And then look at this, this narrow gate passage. Just what a great illustration of this upside-downness of the kingdom of God. That What is the world doing? Well, we, we tend to follow what everyone else is doing. So let's go for the broad road because if, majo- if the majority of people are doing it right, then it must be fine. There must be something good in it. If all of my friends are no longer following, if all of my friends are doing this, if all of my friends got this new app and are, like, we just follow suit, right? That's what we do in America in the 21st century, The broad road, well, if everyone else jumped off a bridge, I probably would too because you know what? I don't want to be the last guy standing. We follow suit and yet God says, no, the kingdom of God is utterly different. It's completely, we don't value what the world values, which doesn't mean you can't be popular, but if everything you want in life is just to be popular, God, there's more to life than that. What do you value? So, just think about that. So, okay, what does this metaphor mean? What are the two roads? I think our natural default would be to think that these two roads are very easy to figure out, right? Two roads, two gates, two houses, two trees. There are two ways to live, right? And what could the options be? But there's the right way and the wrong way, right? There's the good path and the bad path, right? Is that not, like, obvious? Right and wrong, That's what we tend to think, right? The good way is you follow God's rules, you obey God's moral law, you try to follow the the Ten Commandments as best you can, you don't lie, cheat, and steal, you pray, you go to church and read the Bible, and you serve the poor. Uh, Over here is the bad way, and these people just live however they want, very licentious, immoral, screw God, forgive my terminology, but that's what they might say, I don't care what God says, I don't care about church, I don't care about your Bible, I don't care... I'm going to live however I want to live. And if there is a standard, they make up their own standard. But there's the right way and there's the wrong way, right? And we basically know, like, well, God's way is the right way. And this way is wrong. So there's two ways we God says, the good and the bad. And it seems very, very obvious that Jesus says, choose the good way and not the bad way. Obey God, live for God, don't live for yourself, don't create your own standards. But here's why we should question this. It's obvious, right, as I've shown in this whole passage, that Jesus is comparing two different people different roads, two different, there's two paths, there's two ways to live. We've got that. But he concludes this sermon by saying that there's two ways to live. Wouldn't it make sense that he would be addressing these two types of people Like back up in the sermon earlier? Now, we already know by looking at that first passage we discussed, the, the Lord, Lord, the people who are doing all this good ministry, we wouldn't put them in the bad category, would we? They're not doing bad things. They're not murderers. They're not liars and cheaters. They're doing Christian stuff and they're like telling God about it. So that's our first hint. And yet God says, away from me, you evildoers. So wouldn't it make sense if he concludes this way that further back in the passage, Matthew 5 and 6, he brings up these two different groups of people. And so what we find is when you go back to Matthew 6, he doesn't say, uh, here's the people who pray and here's the people who don't here's the people who give to the poor, and here's the people that don't. He doesn't say, here's the people who fast, and these people don't. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Don't pray like they do, babbling on and on, and uh, the baby crying. (laughs) Babbling on and on, and like, like, uh, to be heard by their many words. He's contrasting people who already know the right thing to do. You go back to the first chapter. Most of Matthew 5 He's talking to people who know the Bible, who know the Old Testament, and he brings up the commands of the Old Testament, but he's like adding on to them. So he says, You've heard that it was said, don't murder, but I tell you, be careful about your anger. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you this. He's not talking about people who pray and people who don't. He's talking essentially about people who are, he's to conveyed to them true spirituality and those who are. Pharisees, or those who are doing it just to be seen, who are just doing the externals, as we've talked about. In fact, a key, I think, to this whole passage, I love this verse, this will be on the screens, is Matthew 5.20. Remember, we taught a whole, uh, a whole series of tribe on this a few years back, and this is sort of the way it started. This is another, look at this, "'For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not to the kingdom of God.'" There again we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Those guys were awesome. Like, righteousness? Those guys were like top of the charts, right? So how is my righteousness supposed to surpass that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law? Obviously we go, yeah, but they ha- we, we can have something that they missed. So what's he saying? Jesus is saying the two roads are not simply the good way and the bad way. The two ways are this. The truly gospel-changed heart And what I'm just calling, like, the pharisaical self-righteous heart. Somebody who actually gets the gospel versus the Pharisee, the self-righteous. Every religion and every human heart, unless the Holy Spirit comes into their life and changes them in a drastic way, everybody believes that this is how it works. That you give God a good record, and then God will love and bless you. And he'll answer your prayers, and he'll do things for you. If you give God a stellar religious resume, then God will do things for you. He's like a genie in a bottle. The gospel is this. The gospel is that God gives us a perfect record through Jesus Christ. That you are totally loved, totally adopted, totally delighted treasured and accepted by God forever before you did anything to deserve it and then you lived the rest of your life for him. But virtually everybody, the broad road, everybody says you give God a good record and then God does stuff for you. Then he'll love you and bless you and answer your prayers and give you a successful life. Both people, here's the thing, are trying to obey the Ten Commandments. They're serving the poor. They go to church every week. But for completely different reasons. Inside the tree. The trees look the same, right? The two houses look the same. The two roads look different. But everything else looks the same but they have completely different motivations. The two people are living or operating under are two completely different operating principles. The one basically says, I'm putting God in my debt, and if I obey God, then he'll do things I want him to do, like the people we looked at first. But the people that get the gospel know that they're utterly saved by grace, that they've done nothing to deserve salvation from God. And so if you want an illustration of who's on the broad road and who's on the narrow road, we already looked at it. So again, it's... It's this illustration. They will say, look at this, verse, uh, verse 21. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, okay, 22. Many will say to me, on that day. What is that day? On that day, Lord, Lord. What is Jesus talking about? He's, he's talking about judgment day. That anywhere in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, when it talks about that day or the day of the Lord, he's talking about judgment day. Which I suppose is when you die or I die, or when Jesus comes, whatever, whichever comes first. But I don't know if we'll, st- like, I guess we'll stand before God. The Bible says we'll give an account. But it's like that's where these people are. And they will say on that day, Jesus says, and then they give him, a, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? So reward me. We did all this stuff for you. So bless me. Reward me. Let me come in. And that's how we know that they're on the broad road, right? They're on the road to destruction. They don't love God. They just maybe wanted stuff from God. You guys, you will know what road you're on someday when you encounter, um, like, tragic suffering. When you, any of you in here, when you experience radical suffering, and even I have not encountered this yet, I don't know what that, a death of a parent, if I would experience the death of one of my kids, maybe you've lost someone, a family member, an aunt or an uncle, a grandparent. But when you someday in your life encounter radical suffering that you can't handle, You'll know which road you're on because if that happens and when it does, you shake your fist at God and say, how dare you give this to me? How dare you take that person away from me? I, I've gone to church my whole life. I've prayed to you every day. I've slayed for you all my life, just like the older brother, right, in uh, 15, the prodigal son. I've slayed for you. That's when you know which road you're on. That's when you know if maybe if you're a Christian or not. And the Christian, although it would be absolutely so hard because suffering always is, and we don't even, I don't know whatever the circumstances are, it's tragic, right? You go through something, they will be prepared for suffering, though, probably, because we should expect it in life. And when it hits, he, will, he or she will probably, hopefully, say, maybe through tears, but yet they will say, like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and God, I didn't deserve any of this. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And maybe there'll be a part of us that wants to shake our fist at God, but we'll go, God, I didn't deserve what you've given me. That's maybe how you know what road you're on. So finally, what are the two ways to live, the good and the bad? I already put it one way, but it says Jesus Christ says the two types of people here are the people who think they can save themselves. Or number two, the people who realize that only Jesus can do it. So there's only two types of people, but it's not the good and the bad. I mean, it, in one sense, there's three ways to live. There's the radically far from God kind of people, but then in the good camp, there's those that actually get the gospel, and then there's those who are full of arrogance and pride and think they're better than everybody and think they know more than everybody else and sort of delight in the fact that their friends are going to hell and they don't, that, that just, they're don't. They just self-friends Pharisees. They're older brother types. But in reality, I think Jesus is saying this. I think in these four illustrations, he's saying there's only two ways. Either you're justified by Jesus or you're a self-justifier. But it's all just a facade. You just go through the motions, but you don't really love God. You just want stuff from God. The people who think they can save themselves or the people who know that only Jesus Christ can save them. You guys, every one of you in here is one of those two people. You know why the road is so broad? Because it's, it's filled with lots and lots of people who are in church. And you know what? It's, the broad road is filled with lots and lots of people who are following other religions. And it's filled with lots and lots of people who say, I don't even care about religion. I want nothing to do with God or the Bible or church. They could be atheists. They could be agnostic. They could be whatever else. But again, there's a whole lot of people that just go to church every Sunday, but they're They'd just say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all this for you? And he would say, no. No, you never have known me, and I have never known you. So these people who show up on Judgment Day say, Lord, Lord, we, we believe in you, Jesus. We believe that you're the Son of God. Look at all we've done for you, but now reward us. Jesus, to them, They may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They may believe that Jesus is their example or their inspiration, but he's not their saviour. Because they're their own Savior and Lord. So that's what we have to fight against, you guys. Our own pride. Our own fact. Our our own sense of that we think we have what it takes. And that we can get ourselves there. And all Jesus is our example. You guys, who cares? Jesus is a great example. I won't go too far. Jesus is a great example. But if he's not your Savior, you're just trusting in yourself. So at the end of this amazing sermon, Jesus basically says, he looks at you and me, and he says, choose. Broad road, narrow road. This one's filled with people. Looks really good. It's a freeway. And there's nobody on this one. He says, choose. So I don't have any grand application tonight, but really, you guys, think about that. Where's your heart at? You just go through the motions. And again don't be discouraged. If there's times where you just feel like, I don't feel like doing this stuff, obeying or whatever, I hope you don't chuck it. I hope you know that your faith, that there's something there deep down as we've talked about it tonight. And I hope you find that God is good. And I hope you find that this isn't terribly confusing and you're just like, I don't understand any of this. Because I think Jesus made a way.